The products discussed in this podcast are only available in the United States. Thanks everyone for joining us this afternoon. My name is Anne O'Reilly, and with me are Clyde McGregor and Alex Fitch, Portfolio Managers of the Oakmark Equity and Income Fund, as well as Colin Hudson and Adam Abbas, Portfolio Managers of the Oakmark Equity and Income Fund and Oakmark Bond Fund. Like in past calls, our format is to have Alex and Adam make introductory comments, after which we will open the line up for your questions. Before Alex and Adam begin, I want to remind everyone that manager commentaries and portfolio holdings have been updated for the first quarter and are available on your website, oakmark.com. And now let me turn over to you, Alex and Adam. Thanks, Anne, and thanks to everyone for joining the call today. I'm Alex Fitch, co-manager on the Equity and Income Fund. And starting with the quarter's performance, the Equity and Income Fund increased 3.3% during the first calendar quarter, and that compared to 4.3% for the Lipper Balanced Index. Over the three-year trailing period, the fund returned 15.1% compared to 96 for the Lipper. And since inception in 1995, the fund has generated a compound annual return of 9.4% compared to the Lipper at 67 The largest contributors for the quarter were Alphabet, Bolt Warner, and Amazon, one of the largest detractors with Charles Schwab, Bank of America, and Glencore. As for transaction activity, we initiated new positions in Corbridge and Wendy's during the quarter. Uh, Corbridge is the AIG subsidiary that was recently partially taken public. Uh, in our view, it's an above-average life and retirement company with far fewer of the risks that uh, exist in many life companies and which trades at just four times our estimate of distributable cash flow. Wendy's is obviously the second largest quick-service burger chain in the United States and a remarkably resilient business that's valued at a discount to its franchise peers and a mid-teens multiple of free cash flow. Our asset allocation ended the quarter at 59% equities, 38% fixed, and 3% cash. And this equity weighting was up modestly from 58% at the end of Q422, uh, reflecting a modestly improved opportunity set for equities. The big news during the quarter was, of course, the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and the resulting banking crisis uh, that ensued. Broad-based U.S. bank indices are down around 22% since the day before Silicon Valley Bank's troubles came to light, and our bank holdings have fared only somewhat better. Uh, with Bank of America, Capital One, and Ally performing better than the peer average, and Charles Schwab performing worse. In our view, the problems at Silicon Valley Bank were really driven by a confluence of factors, each of which in their own right might have been manageable, but which in aggregate proved to be terminal. The bank had taken on a lot of duration risk in a low-rate environment, and as interest rates rose, the mark-to-market losses on those securities essentially wiped out the equity value, making SVB on paper at least insolvent. It also had minimal liquidity and, most importantly, had an unusually homogenous deposit base. The small group of customers concentrated in certain geographies and industries and which held large uninsured balances. When those depositors began to panic, uh, it worked spread quickly and ultimately forced SVB to liquidate its securities holdings at a loss and impair its equity value. Our bank holdings look very different than Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, like most all banks today, they do have mark-to-market losses on their securities portfolios, but each of our banks is solvent on a mark-to-market basis today, 
especially at current rates. They're mostly regulated as global systematically important financial institutions, which means they hold far more liquidity on their balance sheet, far more loss absorbing capital to deal exactly with situations like this. And most importantly, our banks tend to have very broad-based, diverse deposit bases with balances that generally fall far below FDIC insurance limits. In our view, there could be some intrinsic value destruction as new regulatory, regulatory requirements come down the road. Um, our best guess today is that this is likely to have only a small impact on intrinsic value for our bank holdings, which are already among the most regulated in the industry. The stock price declines, in our view, have far outpaced the declines in the normalized earnings power of these businesses and the intrinsic value, uh, with our average bank holding trading at a high single-digit multiple of its normalized earnings power. And so we view our financial holdings today as more attractive than they were on March 8th, the day before SVB collapsed. Uh, it follows that we increased our bank holdings modestly during the quarter. With that, I'll turn it over to Adam for an update on fixed income. Thanks, Alex. Uh, within our fixed income investments, which averaged around 38% throughout Q1, we made just over 2% total return, and that lagged the main benchmark. Call it the main benchmarks, GovCred and the Barclays Ag, by more or less 1%, 100 basis points. In that 100 basis points of underperformance, about 80 basis points was from security selection, more than happy to talk more through that. And then the balance was 20 basis points from our yield curve positioning. The, the two sec main securities that detracted in the quarter and caused that 80 bips, 80 basis points of, of loss relative underperformance for the fund was SIVB and Signature Bank. Again, if that's of interest in Q&A, uh, I'm more than happy to talk through the rationale and and what kind of the talking points on how we've learned from from those losses on positioning we continue to move our exposure to government u.s treasury securities higher in the quarter with our last purchase around the peak in yields within the quarter we purchased around 300 basis points of seven-year 10-year and 30-year u.s treasury debt the purchase took our exposure to 16 and a half percent of the fund at quarter end and importantly helped lift the overall fixed income duration profile up to 5.1 now ending the quarter, which is the highest it has been over the last decade. To fund that additional duration protection and increased income, we sold down 100 basis points of our richest fair value high yield names, around 100 basis points there, and another 200 basis points of investment grade credit risk that was at or near fair value. During the regional bank initial meltdown, we also used investment grade paper as a source of funding to purchase around 100 basis points, 1% of equities on our approved list that were either directly or indirectly affected by, by the crisis. I'm sure Colin or Clyde or, or Alex more than happy to talk about some of those purchases. I, I really think this is a good demonstration of rotating from fixed income into equity exposures with limited time um, when the relative valuations presented themselves quite um, obviously, you know, showed quite obvious relative value opportunities. On the Fed, in the hike cycle, I'll just touch on this. We've now entered arguably the hardest phase of this hike cycle for Powell. We, we haven't had a Fed pivot, in my opinion, this, despite the Fed funds futures market's best efforts to signal one. I don't even particularly like the word anymore because of the connotation. 
that it's kind of a full and complete change of 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 strategy. Instead, I I see the last several meetings as the beginning of a shift in policy, and really the toughest. This is the last stage when the Fed can fully pivot dovishly. That would have really meant cutting rates last meeting, uh, because it needs to still pay proper lip service to the ongoing elevated inflationary pressures. We just got new CPI data in today. It still remains quite elevated and certainly above the 2% target that they're targeting. Uh, and this is really why, while balancing the signaling with a few injections of dovish language, this is hard to do. It's hard, kind of a tight, tight, high, high wire, tight rope back. Um, language like events in the banking system are likely to result in tighter credit conditions, et cetera, really to accommodate the growing list of issues that foreshadow potential future economic pain like the latest ISM data, both services and manufacturing that we just got last last couple of weeks. And if it sounds like you're talking about both sides of the mouth, well, it's precisely what it is. And I, I actually think the right approach. Uh, I think this will continue to be a bumpy ride in fixed income and for the broader markets. Uh, however, as we've been saying over the last few quarters, volatility isn't always bad. And in many instances, like the backdrop we are in today, it ultimately manifests itself in, in in wider dispersion of outcomes, and we 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 certainly think that that'll be true as we look out over the medium to longer term. And uh, I think we're standing ready for the next reset in credit spreads, and we already see some opportunities uh, there today, particularly in the securitized market, in particular portions of the investment grade market. I'll uh, stop there and hand it back over to Alex. Thanks, Adam. Okay, at this time, we'd be happy to take any questions. Thank you. Our first question would come from Jason. Your line is now open. Hey, thanks so much for the call. Uh, I just had a couple of questions. Um, I'll just ask the first couple quickly and then, then the last two quickly. Um, the the letter mentioned mid-cap universe finding lots and lots of opportunities. I was just curious, out of the equity percentage, the 59%, um, what the breakdown is approximately in, in non-large caps, I guess specifically mid-caps. Um, and second question for right now is just in terms of extending duration, right, I've never seen it at 5.1 years, and like you folks said, it over the past decade. And I know that you folks don't make interest rate forecasts. Um, I'm going to assume it's just based upon finding attractive yields as opposed to uh, being concerned about a recession taking place because I see that, you know, you mentioned about increasing your government treasuries. I'm going to just assume that that there's just not enough credit spread in IG or high yield to warrant going there, um, and it's really just yield hit a certain point that I guess you folks felt made sense to uh, to add duration to, and on the safest side rather than any kind of you know concerns about uh, um, further rate reductions given a recession and whatnot. Um, I had a couple other questions, but I, I just figured I'd hit those first. Thank you. Adam, why don't you take that second one first, and then we'll get we'll get back to him on the mid cap percentage. Yeah, well, Jason, I, I think you answered it pretty well for me. I mean, I think when we were going through the zero interest rate policy era, and you can argue that we were there were fits and starts over the last prior to the COVID fits and starts uh, that lasted the entirety of the post global financial uh, GFC era, and that what that meant was that there wasn't a compelling case from an income standpoint to own a high weighting of U.S. government treasuries. That what that also meant is, and these are entangled, is that the, the, there wasn't 
the security didn't offer a lot of protection for a balanced fund, meaning it didn't offer our concentrated set of equities a lot of protection in the, to the extent that we did encounter a risk-off period of time. Um, and so now we're in a, if you think about, you fast forward the, over the last 13, 14 months, we're, we're in a, a, just a completely different interest rate regime. You know, we, we've gone from zero interest rate policy to where a 10-year was as high as 4.5%. And now not only did these U.S. risk-free instruments offer income in, in many parts of the curve, two to three times more than they had been offering previously, but they also offered a good ability to protect the equity assets in our portfolio to the extent that there was periods of drawdown um, or, or periods of uh, revaluation. Um, and so, no, we're, it's not a call on some sort of near-term recession or even medium-term recession. That's not what we do. This is really getting to what we believe with where rates are today to be the neutral position for the fund to both provide income and to provide nice protection to our equity assets. Um, I'll leave it at that. Uh, then jumping on uh, the yeah. mid-cap reading question, it's been uh, it's about 30% of the equity portfolio today would be um, non-large caps, essentially. And uh, in general, if you looked at our recent purchases, it's, it's been skewed in that direction. Things like Corbridge, Wendy's, last quarter we added Masco, uh, been building a position in Lithia. So it, it's definitely an area where we've been finding opportunity, and I think that that fits with what was uh, written in the letter and included in your question, that there's been this period of significant mid-cap underperformance, and so it's a reasonably fertile hunting ground for us. Understood. Last question, if you would really appreciate the time. And, um, uh, you know, you talked about how banks are, are very regulated. Uh, I was just curious how the banks, their returns on equity, compare relative to your non-banks, uh, if there's a concern, I guess, about that, um, declining or, or not, given that most of the banks that you own are, are quite large and diverse. Uh, and then with the, specifically with respect to Schwab, you know, I, I, for like the best 20 years, it seems like the brokerage firms, what they do is they sweep everybody, obviously, to their money market deposit whenever that's usually less than funds and then vice versa. You know, I know Schwab haven't generated anything, so like 40% of some, some key number, I don't know if it's operating income or something from, from their uh, interest income. And I just didn't know if if there was any concern about as rates have gone up and, you know, maybe advisors that, you know, through their RA channel and, and investors are just more tuned with higher rates, not for the bank. If, if that's a concern for somebody like a Schwab or, or, or anybody else that, you know, again, relies significantly on their, their uh, sweep balances for uh, a decent percentage of their overall, you know, uh, net income. Thank you. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head on Schwab. Um, it's a major concern that, you know, the business has become increasingly dependent on sweep to the bank. And as rates rise, customers are pretty consistently moving cash out of the bank and into higher yielding money market funds. And it's a drag on earnings. Um, the, the way that, you know, it's hard to predict how far it moves. What we do know is there is some floor, right? There's transactional cash in these accounts sitting between trades that is always going to be in the bank and with where the uh, balances are today we are 
below prior floor levels. And so it gives you some comfort that we're getting closer to the end of that trend, um, which should mean that earnings stabilize and we start to reap the benefits of these higher rates as they roll over their investment portfolio. At a very high level, um, the way we think about Schwab is that they're the largest company in the industry and they have the lowest cost structure in the industry by a pretty wide margin. And their closest competitor doesn't operate a bank. Fidelity doesn't have a bank. It sweeps everyone to a money fund. And because it has that model, it's had to introduce custody fees to its RIA clients. It's had to find other ways to monetize. Um, Our view is that Schwab, having the best cost structure, will be able to earn a good return on that, you know, above that cost structure, uh, regardless of how it ultimately monetizes that business. And the revealed preference of clients over time has been they like to be they like to pay through foregone interest on their cash. Um, if that model changes, Schwab will still have an excess margin relative to fidelity because their cost structure is just so much lower from their scale. So that's the way we think about it. But absolutely, everybody today is focused on when this shift to money funds will end. Yeah, Jay, today it's Colin. I'll take the uh, ROE question. So put them in three buckets. Uh, the insurance companies have the lowest ROEs. Um, it's, you know, something like they're usually low teens for RGA, AIG, and core bridge. And our valuations reflect that where RGA, we value just over bucks, uh, AIG on the PNC component. We value basically a just at book or a little higher and core bridge, uh, you know, a little higher risk, much longer duration assets, uh, variable annuities. Accounting is complicated. That one we value at about 75% a buck. Uh, the bank, the, it, as uh, Alex said, you know, we, we think we have a pretty good grouping of banks. They are larger, more regulated, but we think on average they're about a mid-teens ROE. Uh, the ones we have probably, you know, maybe the new rules will make them make their ROE go down at pad bet, but it would be like 50 basis points. We think yeah, that mid-teens ROE is still a good guess. And then you have, you know, the, the asset managers have obviously very, very high ROEs. You know, they're valued at a much higher multiple of earnings. State Street, another very high ROE, but, you know, probably close to 20% on tangible. And then you have, the, the last one is, you know, Willard Howard Watson's an insurance broker, and those also have very high ROEs. And again, that's about 20 times earnings we value that being reflective of, you know, high ROEs. So insurance companies are the lowest, banks are kind of in the middle, then I would say everything else is kind of, 20% plus and, you know, the multiples we put on them reflect that. I would just add one thing on the banks. Uh, you know, over the last 15 years, we've seen pretty consistent increases in regulation that have lowered the bank ROEs. And obviously today the talk is again about further regulation that lowers those ROEs. I think investors to us seem to be only looking at one side of the coin when they think about all that regulation. Um, the ROEs might go down, but there's a meaningful reduction in risk as you hold more equity and more liquidity and you follow all these regulatory requirements. And that would conceivably argue for a lower discount rate given the more stable business. And so it's not as clear how value changes, even though the ROEs might be down. That's a good point. Got it. Thank you all. Pre- really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Okay, then. With no further questions, I want to thank you all for your time and interest this afternoon.
We look forward to speaking with you again next quarter. Important information. Average annualized total returns for Oakmark Equity and Income Fund investor shares as of March 31st, 2023. 3-month, 3 3.26. Year-to-date, 3.26. 1-year, minus 6.59. 3 years, 15.07. 5 years, 5.72. 10 years, 7.02. Average annualized total returns for Lipper Balanced Funds Index as of March 31st, 2023. 3-month, 4.26. Year-to-date, 4.26. 1 year, minus 6.04. 3 years, 9.61. 5 years, 5.70. 10 years, 6.54. For Oakmark Equity and Income Fund Class I shares, the gross expense ratio is 0.83% and the net expense ratio is 0.83%. As of the most recent prospectus, the investment advisor has contractually agreed to waive fees and or reimburse expenses, with certain exceptions once the expense cap of the fund has been exceeded. This arrangement is set to expire on January 27, 2024. When an expense cap has not been exceeded, the gross and net expense ratios may be the same. Performance data listed represents past performance and is no guarantee of, and not necessarily indicative of, future results. Total return and value will vary, and you may have a gain or loss when shares are sold. Current performance may be lower or higher than quoted. For most recent month-end performance, visit im.natixis.com. Performance for other share classes will be greater or less based on differences in fees and sales charges. Performance for periods less than one year is cumulative, not annualized. Returns reflect changes in share price and reinvestment of dividends and capital gains. If any, the views and opinions expressed may change based on market and other conditions. This material is provided for information purposes only and should not be construed as investment advice. There can be no assurance that developments will transpire as forecasted. Actual results may vary. The index information contained herein is derived from third parties and is provided on an as-is basis. The user of this information assumes the entire risk of use of this information. Each of the third-party entities involved in compiling, computing or creating index information disclaims all warranties, including, without limitation, any warranties of originality, accuracy, completeness, timeliness, non-infringement, mercantility and fitness for a particular purpose. With respect to such information, definitions of terms used in this material, Lipper Balanced Funds Index is an unmanaged index which tracks the average performance of the 30 largest balanced funds according to Lipper Inc. S&P 500 Index is a widely recognized measure of U.S. stock market performance. It is an unmanaged index of 500 common stocks chosen for market size, liquidity, and industry group representation, among other factors. It also measures the performance of the large cap segment of the U.S. equities market. Russell 1000 Value Index is an unmanaged index that measures the performance of the large cap value segment of the U.S. equity universe. It includes those Russell 1000 companies with lower price-to-book ratios and lower expected growth values. Russell 1000 Growth Index is an unmanaged index that measures the performance of the large cap growth segment of the U.S. equity universe. It includes those Russell 1000 companies with higher price-to-book ratios and higher forecasted growth values. Bloomberg U.S. Aggregate Bond Index is a broad-based index that covers the U.S. dollar-denominated, investment-grade, fixed-rate, taxable bond market of SEC-registered securities. The index includes bonds from the Treasury, government-related, corporate, mortgage-backed securities, asset-backed securities, and collateralized mortgage-backed securities sectors. S&P 600 is an index of small-cap stocks managed by Standard & Poor's. It tracks a broad range of small-sized companies that meet specific liquidity and stability requirements. Requirements. This is determined by specific metrics such as public float, market capitalization, and financial viability among a few other factors. P2E, trailing, ratio is the weighted harmonic average of the price to earnings. PE ratios of all the stocks in the portfolio. PE ratio is the ratio of a stock's price to its earnings per share for the trailing 12 months. Does not include options. This excludes negative earnings. Tips is the inflation protected securities move with the rate of inflation and carry the risk that in deflationary conditions, when inflation is negative, the value of the bond may decrease. The Durbin Amendment, Durbin Act, is a part of the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act that limits transaction fees imposed upon merchants by debit card issuers. The amendment, named after U.S. Senator Richard J. Durbin and introduced in 2010, proposed to restrict these interchange fees.
fees, which averaged 44 cents per transaction based on 1% to 3% of the transaction amount, to 12 cents per transaction for banks with $10 billion or more in assets. Absolute Performance Standard is a theoretical benchmark for quality control. OEM, original equipment manufacturer traditionally is a company whose goods are used as components in the products of another company, which then sells the finished item to users. Intrinsic value is a measure of what an asset is worth. This measure is arrived at by means of an objective calculation or complex financial model, rather than using the currently trading market price of that asset. Global Industry Classification Standard, GICS, is a method for assigning every public company to the economic sector and industry group which best defines its business. It is one of two rival systems that are used by investors, analysts, and economists to compare and contrast competing companies. Basis points, BPS, refers to a common unit of measure for interest rates and other percentages in finance. An asset-backed security, ABS, is a debt security collateralized by a pool of assets. Barclays Capital US, Government Credit Bond Index, ETF Tracker is an index measures the performance of US, dollar-denominated US, treasuries, government-related and investment-grade US corporate securities that have a remaining maturity of greater than one year. ESG stands for environmental, social, and governance criteria and are a set of standards for a company's operations that socially conscious investors use to screen potential investments. Top 10 equity holdings for the Oakmark Equity and Income Fund as of March 31, 2023. Alphabet Class A, 7.4% of equity. Amazon.com, 5.4% of equity. TE Connectivity, 4.5% of equity. Glencore, 4.5% of equity. Bank of America, 4.3% of equity. General Motors, 3.7% of equity. HCA Healthcare, 3.4% of equity. Pfizer, 3.4% of equity. KKR, 3.3% of equity. Board Warner, 3.3% of equity. The portfolio is actively managed and characteristics. Holdings or sectors are subject to change. References to specific securities or industries should not be considered a recommendation. For current characteristics, holdings or sectors please visit our website. All investing involves risk, including risk of loss, fund risks. Equity securities are volatile and can decline significantly in response to broad market and economic conditions. Value investing carries the risk that a security can continue to be undervalued by the market for long periods of time. Foreign securities may involve heightened risk due to currency fluctuations. Additionally, they may be subject to greater political, economic, environmental, credit, and information risks. Foreign securities may be subject to higher volatility than U.S. securities, due to varying degrees of regulation and limited liquidity. Concentrated investments in a particular industry may be more vulnerable to adverse changes in that industry or the market as a whole. Fixed income securities may carry one or more of the following risks. Credit, interest rate, as interest rates rise bond prices usually fall, inflation and liquidity. Below investment grade fixed income securities may be subject to greater risks, including the risk of default, than other fixed income securities. Credit quality reflects the highest credit rating assigned to individual holdings of the fund among Moody's, S&P or Fitch. Ratings are subject to change. The fund's share are not rated by any rating agency and no credit rating for fund shares is implied. Bond credit ratings are measured on a scale that generally ranges from AAA, highest to D, lowest. Before investing in any Oakmark fund, you should carefully consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, management fees and other expenses. This and other important information is contained in a fund's prospectus and summary prospectus. Please read the prospectus and summary prospectus carefully before investing. For more information, please call 1-800-625-6275. This material is provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment advice. There can be no assurance that developed will transpire as forecasted. Actual results may vary. The views and opinions expressed are as of April 12, 2023 and may change based on market and other conditions. All investing involves risk, including the risk of loss. Natixis Distribution, LLC is a marketing agent for the Oakmark Funds, a limited-purpose broker, dealer and the distributor of various registered investment companies for which advisory services are provided by affiliates of Natixis Investment Managers. Add tracks, 1478458291. Expiration date, July 31, 2023. POD 60, March, 2023.